Welcome to Confessing the Faith, a podcast devoted to discussions concerning Christian doctrine and the Christian life. My name is Mike Tizier, and I'm joined again today by Joe Anity. Hey, Joe. Hey, Mike. How you doing? I'm good. How about yourself? I'm doing well. I'm excited about uh, this topic today. Yeah. It, uh, it's been on the docket to do for a while. It has. It's an important topic um, when we're talking about a, the, the liturgy. I think even that term might be unfamiliar to some folks, mm-hmm. uh, but we're talking about the order of worship, uh, the things that we do on the Lord's Day when we gather together for worship. I mean, it's something we walk through every Lord's Day together, um, and yet, you know, we we rarely explain why it is that we're doing these things, and I wonder how many folks understand the rationale behind them. So it's an important yeah. topic, and I'm looking forward to it. It's been something well. we've we've you know studied and gone through a lot of changes, you know, just as we've learned, you know, together through this to the life of Emmaus and before, you know, it's been fun. Well, just this last Lord's Day, I was talking about all the changes, you know, I was reminiscing on the changes Mm -hmm. that we've experienced over the past five years. And I mean, I mentioned it just in passing, but I did make a comment that early on, we wrestled a lot with the issue of worship um, uh, or the issue of music. uh, Right. I think I said music, but um, uh, really it was a study that was broader than that. We were asking right. the question, what should the elements of our worship be? Music being one small component of right. that, obviously. But um, um, yeah, it, it's been something we've considered deeply. Um, we've kind of settled on some things. It's time for us now, I guess, to to talk about them in detail. Yeah. Huh? yeah. Well, let's start with the with this question. Does it matter what Christians do in corporate worship? Yes, it does matter. <laughs> you know, I, I, resounding yes. <laughs> it, it matters what we do when we gather together on the Lord's Day. Again, I think it's a thing that we're you know Christians. They show up to church on Sunday. They go somewhere, and they expect certain things to happen. Um, you know, they assume certain things are going to happen, but rarely do we ask the question: Why is it that the Christian church worships in this way? Or, you know, sometimes maybe the question should be asked: Why are we worshiping this way? Is it appropriate? Um, but it does matter what we do in worship. Uh, Christians have been called um, to God, by God, and to God through Christ to offer worship to God in Jesus' name. Um, we have to remember that, that this is the, the thing that we have been called to, is to the worship of of God Almighty. Uh, that is really what distinguishes the Christian from the non-Christian. The Christian worships the triune God in Jesus' name. And so worship is not, you know, one little aspect of the Christian life. It really is a central thing. It is something that we are doing constantly. Obviously, uh, as individuals, uh, we worship 24-7 in in, in some respects. That really has been emphasized a lot, I think, in our day, that all of life is worship. And it's a good thing. It's a true thing. I don't want to minimize that, but I think some have emphasize that to the exclusion of, um, you know, the significance of our corporate worship on the Lord's Day. That's really what we're talking about here. We're saying that we have been called by God uh, to worship God through Jesus Christ, not merely as individuals, but as the people of God corporately as well, so that we are to come to the Lord and we are to offer Him praise as a congregation, as a church, as a gathering together of God's people. It definitely matters uh, what we do in corporate, in corporate worship. Right. Yeah. Well, what do the scriptures say about how we are to worship? So what, you know, what do they specifically say in, in the, the way we're supposed to worship together? Well, I think it's just important to recognize um, 
this basic principle. The scriptures do give instruction as to how we are to worship God. It is not just that we are called to worship God and then, you know, hey, enjoy find, you know, figuring out what you want to do in it, you know, and, and come to me any way you please. The, the scriptures are very specific as to how we are to worship the triune God. And it, this is very evident in the Old Testament, right? Um, think of, for example, the Exodus event. There, the people of, of, of Israel, uh, the Hebrews are in bondage in Egypt, and they are redeemed by God. They are rescued. Uh, this great act of redemption was accomplished in history. And why were they redeemed? They were redeemed so that they might be brought out to worship God. And then what do we see in the uh, the law except all of these instructions for the, the, the proper worship of God? They're so detailed in the Old Testament, you know, and, and, and the people of God were to take care to do exactly as um, – the word of the Lord instructed them to do. They were to take care not to go beyond that and do other things, but rather they were to be consistent uh, to worship the Lord as he had prescribed. And so I think it's very easy for people to see that um, there was a particular way for the people of God to worship under the old covenant. Um, but the same is true of the new covenant as well. Um, we do see in the New Testament that there are to be um, certain elements to um, our worship, um, what comes to the surface in the New Testament, of course, is that we are to uh, devote ourselves to, to prayer. We are to devote ourselves to the reading and teaching of the Word of God. We are to devote ourselves to singing, singing of um, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And we are to devote ourselves to uh, the sacraments, uh, the, the administration or the, the participation and the sacraments, that is baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so the New Testament is just as clear as the old as to what our worship is to consist of. It's simpler than Old Covenant worship. Oh, yeah. But there's a reason for that. It's because Christ has come. And the Old Covenant form of worship was complex because, in part, it was prefiguring or... Uh, typifying what the Christ would be like, you know, it, it, it had that function. And so there was more complexity to it as it um, prepared the people of God for the coming of the Messiah. Uh, but in the new covenant, now that Christ has come, our worship is very simple, but the New Testament makes it clear that it is to consist of these elements, prayer, the reading and teaching of the word, singing, and the observation of the sacraments, um, you know, I think of that famous passage in Acts 2 where we're told that the the, the, the people devoted themselves to uh, the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of the bread, to prayers, to the fellowship. You know, these are the things that they devoted themselves to. And obviously the church also, um, uh, we are told elsewhere, elsewhere, is to sing, is to sing when they come together. So, um, yeah, who is to be worshipped? The triune God. What are the elements of the worship? I've already stated them here. Where are we to worship? Um, Christ makes it clear that it's neither on this mountain nor that, uh, but we are to worship in spirit and in truth. Um, I'm thinking there of the story of the encounter between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. She was all concerned uh, that, uh, you know, the, the Jews had their place of worship and the Samaritans theirs, and, you know, where exactly is the right place to worship Jesus? And he was uh, making it clear to her that a, a new age was um, 
breaking through even then where uh, the place of worship uh, wasn't going to matter, but rather uh, spirit and truth uh, was the thing that, that mattered. And so where are we to worship? Well, it doesn't really matter. I think we can worship in buildings. We could even worship outdoors. If, right. <laughs> right? But it, it's about the people gathered. Uh, that is the point. Uh, when are we to worship? We are to worship on the Lord's Day, which is the Christian Sabbath. Uh, the scriptures make that clear. And why? We are to worship because God is creator and we are his creatures. You know, that, that's the reason. Uh, as to why we are to worship. It is not because, well, I feel thankful or I feel grateful today. Right. We are creatures of God. Therefore, we owe him worship right. by that by that fact. But more than that, we are to worship because we have re- been redeemed by God. Uh, we, we have been rescued, saved by him. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. And, and so we are to worship him. And so, you, you know, I think it, it's important to emphasize this again, that worship... Christian worship, biblical worship, involves much more than just singing. Right, right. That's a huge thing. I mean, that that was something that really got under my skin for a long time, which is that uh, that disservice we've done to that word and the just general Christian church. And we say worship, people think we mean music. And, you know, just in the context of a service, worship means so much more than that. Right. So, the, the whole service, as yeah. we'll talk about in a moment, is a worship service, exactly. All, you know, and there, there there are more elements than just singing. Though singing is an, is important, and then we've already talked about this that even the whole of life is to be a life of right. worship before God. Um, but yeah, that, that's it's important to remember. It takes time to break the habit, I think, mm-hmm. of talking about music as if it were worship and it alone. You know, right. but we have to kind of re retrain ourselves in terms of the, the terminology we use. Yeah. Well, is there any room for creativity in worship? We can answer that in two ways. No and then yes. And I think it's important, obviously, to explain uh, what is meant by that. Um, no, there is no create room for creativity in worship in regard to the essential or core, core elements of our worship. Right, right. Okay. So we are to do what the scriptures call us to do, and we are not to do more than what the scriptures right. call us to do. Uh, to for a pastor or a worship leader to, you know, kind of thrust something else upon the congregation on a Sunday morning, some some odd thing, not mentioned in the scripture, some odd element. Uh, I think that's wrong. You're actually causing a whole, a whole group of people now to enter into uh, some form of worship that the scriptures have not called us to. Right. We have right. to be very careful of that. To to do. What the scriptures call us to do, and not more than it. Uh, again, I think um, those things are prayer, um, the reading and teaching of, of God's word, preaching is what we call that typically, um, uh, the, the singing of songs, and and also the observation of the Lord's supper and baptism right. when when opportunities arise for that. Those are the things we are to do, and not more than that. I think it's a, it's it's really helpful to look at it like that. The whole you know if if we're leading people into something else other than those things, we're essentially commanding them to do something that's not commanded for mm-hmm. us to do. Yeah, there's a chapter in our confession entitled Of Christian Liberty. And really the whole um, the whole chapter is dealing with uh, uh, the idea that um, it, it's wrong for the church or for Christian leaders to um, force people to do more than what the scriptures command. Um, we are to uh, 
lead the congregation to do what the scriptures command, but not more. Right. To do more is to bind their conscience, and it, it's to uh, put a heavy um, burden upon them that should not um, be put upon them. The, the passage that always comes to mind, and I'm not going to take time to explain this really, but it, it just kind of illustrates the principle to me, is from Leviticus 10, 1 through 2, where we read about uh, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, and they each took their censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. I, you know, I'm not going to take the time, nor do I am I really prepared to uh, explain exactly what that means. But the point is that they they were worshiping in a way which God had not commanded them. So, so you notice that emphasis there. They were worshiping in a way that God had not commanded them, and therefore fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. I don't know if we're to expect this as like a normative sort of thing, you know, like every time. I mean, obviously it's not, but it happened early on in Israel's history, and obviously what's going on here is a point is being made by God to the people of God that you are to worship me as I have told you to worship me and not in different ways. You're not to add to it or take away. And these um, these sons of Aaron were violating that principle, and God judged them harshly at this time. I, um, again, I, I don't think this is normative, but a lesson can be drawn from this, I think. We have to be careful to worship as God has prescribed and not to go beyond uh, the Scriptures. Um, so no, in a, in a way, there is no room at all for creativity and worship. Um, but we might also say that, yes, there is room for so-called creativity in regard to determining how exactly those elements of, of worship are to be executed. Right. Okay. Um, our confession is helpful here. Also, in chapter 1, paragraph 6, we read that the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scriptures. This is in that chapter on the Scriptures. So we see that the Scriptures are the rule of faith for us. We look to the Scriptures to know how to worship and how to live before God, unto which nothing at any time is to be added whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. Um, Going on further here, there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word which are always to be observed. So what is this telling us? It's telling us that the scriptures are specific as to how God is to be worshipped, but there are some things having to do with the worship of God and the government of the church uh, that, that can be decided according to the light of nature, Christian prudence, general rules of the word, right? Um, but So there is room right. for so-called creativity, right? An example, like s- simple examples could be chairs or pews. Um, yeah. Well, know, even uh, like, when should the congregation sit or stand? Right, right. Uh, what time should we meet for worship? Mm-hmm. We know we're to meet on the Lord's Day, but, at, you know, 12.01 a.m. on the Lord's Day or... We meet at a more reasonable time. You know, um, yeah. what instrument should be used, yeah. if any? You know, is it only right to sing a cappella? Uh, does it have to be a piano? Um, organ. Pipe organ. Uh, I remember at Moody, that, that's their that's their pride and joy, man. They have this ginormous uh, pipe organ. Uh, or can we use a guitar? 
you know, are drums of any kind ever appropriate? Um, I, I think, yes, there's some freedom there for um, so-called creativity, for artistic expression. You know, how long should the service be? Um, we meet for an hour and a half. Some churches only meet for an hour. Some probably meet for much more than that. I know, I know that's true of churches all around the world. Um, how much time should be devoted to singing prayer and the reading and teaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments? What I have in mind here is like, okay, if, if we're meeting for an hour and a half, how should this be divvied up exactly? Um, how should we dress? Who should be involved in leading the various elements of the liturgy? The, I mean, these right. are the kinds of things where I, the scriptures aren't clear on this. Right. And, and they, they can vary from country to country or area or you know, season to season. Yeah, culture yeah. plays a big uh, role in this in determining some of these things, I think. But the point does need to be made that even these decisions, the ones where we have some freedom, you know, uh, um, even these decisions are in some ways – uh, constrained by general principles found in in God's word. In fact, that's what the confession means uh, when it says that we are to uh, make these decisions according to the general rules of the word. Um, another way to say this is that it is possible to pray and to read and teach the word and to sing and to observe the sacraments wrongly, even right. sinfully. <laughs> the, the point is this: you can have the right um, you can have the right elements. But you can execute, you know, the, the 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 use of those elements in the service in a terrible way, you know. So just because you sing and pray and read the Bible and administer the sacraments doesn't mean you have accomplished really anything. It, it, there are general rules, general principles to be followed as well. Um, you know, if you're really to have a worship service that is truly God honoring, Christ exalting, you right. know, and edifying for the people of God. Right. So I, I've I've witnessed it. So have you, Mike? Church church services where there there's music, there's singing, but you watch and you go, is this to the glory of God or is it to the glory of the people who are on stage right now? Mm-hmm. You know, is this is this a worship service or a concert? You know, both involve music, but there's a way to lead a worship service and there's a way to perform at a concert. They're, they're two very different things. Right, right. Um, the same could be said about preaching. Quite honestly, I think preachers have to be very careful about how they preach. Um, obviously, what we preach needs to be true and according to the scriptures. It needs to have a, a particular focus upon Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ. It needs to have a focus upon the history of redemption, I think. It also needs to, in the same way, not be self-glorifying preachers can fall into the same trap as musicians and that they begin to draw attention to themselves instead of to, uh, instead of to the glory of God. Mm. Um, so it's important to ask that the question, why are we doing what we're doing? Uh, why is this element in there? And, um, we're going to, I don't know if you're going to, you're going to talk about this at some point, but just Arbka has an awesome position paper on all this, uh, on the regulative, reg, regulative principle of worship. Right. Um, but just one one line they say in here in regards to this circumstances versus elements is really cool. It says, um, it is necessary to keep clear the distinction between circumstances and elements lest we introduce into our worship elements that go beyond what God has commanded, which is summarizing what we just said. Sure. Just that yeah. 
that distinction between and being very careful exactly what you're saying that we're not using the the idea of a circumstance to validate something that's not supposed to be there in the first place um right yeah i I would encourage you to read that position paper um it's found on the arbca website i have a link to it here in the show notes um but it's called a position paper concerning the regulative principle of worship. What we're describing here is the regulative right. principle principle of worship. You, you, that may be a new f- term, a new phrase. But um, you know, there there are different views uh, concerning all of this. Um, some would hold to what is often called the normative principle of worship, uh, which is the idea that we are free to do anything that the scriptures do not forbid. Right. I think that's the most commonly held, unknowingly commonly held uh, system of, of worship in churches. Sure. So if the scriptures do not forbid it, we're free to do it. Right. Just think about that for a minute. <laughs> I mean, right. it, it, I mean, anything kind of goes, just about anything goes, unless it is like explicitly sinful, you know, all out sinful. Um, we hold to the regulative principle of worship, which, which is that we are to do what God has commanded us to do in worship. And then with what has already been said as the caveat that, of course, there are some elements of our worship that are uh, – that there's freedom in it, you know, right. to determine some of the specifics. But 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 God has been clear, we believe, um, in the Old Testament and in the New, in the Old Covenant and in the New, uh, concerning how he desires to be worshipped. By, by his people. And I think when you look at those two um, principles side by side, the normative and the regulative, it, it becomes really more obvious when you think about that flip side, you know, what are we commanding our people to do? Mm-hmm. You know, so we're requiring the congregation to do these things that are not uh, commanded for us to do, then something's wrong. And th- I think that's, that's important to look at that way. Sure. Cause you can say, well, if it's not forbidden, then it can't hurt. But then, when you think about the 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 consequence that you're actually having, a, we're in a corporate worship service. This is right, an individual right. worship time. This is you're asking a body of believers to jointly do something, and I think that's that, that responsibility is a lot heavier than mm-hmm. an individual yeah. experience. So absolutely, yeah. I'd, I'd encourage folks to read that. Um, I remember you and I going through that long ago, Mike. I don't know how many years it's been now. Yeah, but it was kind of early on in our journey together. We both came out of different traditions. Um, yeah, very, very different. different traditions. And I remember that that paper was um, very helpful yeah. um, in regard to bringing you and I onto uh, the same page. Mm-hmm. And what I remember is that we both read it and we we went, yeah, this is it. You know, this is what we've been feeling yeah. and, and, and thinking loosely about for a long time. And it really helped to uh, solidify some of our views on this. I mean, for me too, like uh, terminology wise, I had never heard of these principles until reading this paper so that's mm-hmm. this is this was new to me then especially so helped to put words to to the thoughts so you were a music major in college i was so i was a music ministry major and you I never think. heard these terms no okay. that shows you a lot there you go brother <laughs> it's uh good to have those things to know what to ask you know sure um so well, so prayer, the reading and teaching of the word, the singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and the observance of the sacraments are the elements of Christian worship. Is there freedom in regard to the order of worship or liturgy? And we kind of hit to that. Yes, yes, there's freedom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we know what the elements of worship are 
now is there freedom in regard to deciding how each of those things are to be executed, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in a worship service on the Lord's Day? And we would say, yes, um, th- there's some freedom there. Uh, but, I, I, again, I do think that the Scriptures present us with a general pattern for the worship of God. Absolutely, yeah. Um, you know, go back to that Exodus you know, uh, narrative. Uh, the people of God are called uh, to worship God. They are shown the glory of God. They come to the realization that they are sinful and not worthy to worship. Uh, there's there, there's, a, there's a, a confession of, of sin, the word of God, you know, and provisions are made so they can worship God. Uh, the, the word of God is presented to them. And uh, they are given, uh, you know, visible signs and, and, and instructions for their worship, and they are sent out as God's. You know, so what I'm saying is, there, there's just kind of a if you pay careful attention to these worship vignettes in, in the Old Testament, uh, in particular, you do, do see that there's a general pattern. You know, there are general principles. I think we should think about the worship service uh, theologically. Uh, understanding what we are doing when we are coming to church on the Lord's Day, when we are coming to gather together as the people of God. What are we doing exactly? We're coming to worship the triune God and our theology, our understanding of who God is and who we are and how he has provided a way for us to approach him and, and all of that. Our theology should obviously have an impact upon how we structure the worship service so that the worship service itself, the order of worship or the liturgy itself communicates truth concerning who God is, mm-hmm. who we are, yeah. and how it is that we approach him in Christ Jesus. In, in other words, it's not just what the pastor says during the sermon that teaches. It's not even just the words that we sing in the songs that teach. They do have that function, by the way, of teaching. Uh, music and, and singing is, is powerful in that regard. Uh, but it is also the whole ebb and flow of the worship service itself that communicates yeah. truth yeah. to the people of God, whether they know it or not. It's much more subtle, I think. Um, it's not explicit, but but we learn something just through following and walking through uh, the order of worship each Lord's Day. Our children are learning things mm-hmm. about who God is and how it is that we approach him uh, just through the, the liturgy. Itself, I think we really do need to think theo- theologically about um, our our worship. Um, also, we need to see that worship is a covenantal event. Um, it involves communion or dialogue between God and his people. And so there's to be this kind of interaction where we pray to God, we sing to God, and we also receive his word uh, spoken to, to us uh, through the Holy Scriptures, and then, of course, the Lord's Supper, I think, has a way of bringing that all together, you know, and, and, and signifying the communion bond uh, between God and his people as we come and, and, and sit at his uh, table and, and commune with him as he has commanded. Um, so, yes, there is some freedom, but yet again, the Scriptures should constrain us. Um, the Scriptures themselves should constrain us. We should pay attention to the various uh, worship vignettes that are recorded for us in the Old and New Testaments 
We should learn from them. We should think theologically. We should think covenantally as well. Um, we should think about the fact that we are indeed in truth and in spirit approaching God Almighty and uh, worshiping Him, hearing from Him, having communion with Him through Christ Jesus. All of that should really impact the decisions that we make in regard to how we execute these various elements of worship that the Scriptures have prescribed. Right, right. Well, let's uh, let's talk about the the order of worship at Emmaus and why we have it that way. So. We always been, begin with announcements. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's, that's a necessary thing to, you know, that's when the church is gathered. We need to communicate things. Uh, we do it at the beginning, partly because, um, in a sense, the worship service has not begun Right. when we are doing the announcements. Honestly, it, it's going to begin with what we talk about next with the call to worship. Um, but it, the announcements are not, um, insignificant either. I, I think it is good to just communicate that, uh, the, there are things going on in the church that matter that you know go beyond the confines of of that building or uh, beyond the confines of that time slot on a sunday morning and so mm-hmm. we'll, we'll announce various things and it's yeah it's it's specifically placed there so it doesn't interrupt the rest of the the liturgy it, it is. you know so. yeah um we're about to enter into worship and we want everything to be directed towards that the worship of god and so it's placed there to in a way get it out of the way though it is an important thing um to get it out of the way so that we can enter into worship in a very concentrated fashion you know and then after that we do say the call to worship we read the call to worship um this communicates something to us theologically about god doesn't it Uh, it communicates this principle that God is the one who calls us to worship him. Right. I mean, that's the reality of things. If we go back to the beginning of the Christian experience for us, the Christian life for us, it's we worship God. Why? Because he called us. Mm-hmm. Because he called us out of darkness into his glorious kingdom. You know, he called us. Uh, the same thing can be uh, seen w- w- with the Exodus event again. Why did the people of, of Israel go out to worship God's because God called them out from that place of, of bondage. And then we worship not by our own initiative, but in response to uh, the call of God. And so we do make a practice of, of always reading some portion of Scripture which emphasizes this theme, the call of God upon our lives, mm-hmm. um, the, the call to worship God Almighty. So an example of this would be Uh, Psalm 100, verses 1 through 4, which says, Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and not we ourselves. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. And and so that's just one example of a a scripture text we might read that is very clear. This, This is this is the people of God being called to worship God, um, first of all, because he is our maker, uh, but secondly, because we are the sheep of his pasture. We're to enter his gates, gates with thanksgiving. So um, that's the first – that's what marks that's the, the beginning element, yeah. of and, our worship. And that's something we, we, you know, we went back and forth with for a little bit just in the thought process of what we're going to do first. And because we wanted to pray first, that was kind of the initial thing we were doing. I think that's true. a long time yep. ago was just praying first as a way to just kind of to act in that way, almost to bring people into 
starting, this is, this is signifying the start of the service, but Mm -hmm. going back to that thought process, no, we're going to remember and use this as an, as a reminder to ourselves and the people that it is God who calls us into worship first. And then, yeah, I don't know how long ago that was, but remember, I I think I came to, I said, Mike, this is such a little thing. And in a way it's a fine nuance here, but this is important. Why are we praying first and then reading the call to worship? It's backwards. We need to read the call to worship. Um, God is the one who calls us. That is the reason we call out to him is because he first calls us. And then we need to pray the prayer of invocation, and that is what we do next. And and a prayer of invocation. What I want you to notice is that throughout the the liturgy here, there are various kinds of of prayers that are prayed. Um, We should recognize this, that we as God's people are to pray, but there are different types of prayer. And so we have prayer kind of uh, sprinkled throughout the service here, but they are different kinds of prayer. This is the prayer of invocation. It's where we call upon the name of the Lord. It's where we uh, name him and claim him as our God. It is where we thank and praise his name. Uh, It is also an opportunity for us to unite the whole congregation together in the name of Jesus. And so it's it's very important for us to, now that we have read the call to worship, to then call out to God. And, and to call upon his name and to confess that he is our God, to begin thanking him and addressing him in that way. So there are examples of, of prayers of invocation in the scriptures. Uh, Psalm 8, one, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. You know, that that's, that psalm begins with this, this um, element of praise uh, where the Lord is named. He is named as... Our Lord, you know, by the psalmist, and he is he is praised. Uh, he is majestic. Um, the Lord's prayer begins this way: We are to pray then like this. Jesus says, "Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name." You know, uh, so so the beginning of our prayers um, should contain this this prayer of or this emphasis upon invocation. From there, we sing, right? And usually, yeah. it's songs emphasizing the holiness of God, the greatness mm-hmm. of God. Um, we're coming before this, um, you know, all-powerful, all, uh, all never-ending God, you know, yeah. uh, and sovereign, and so we focus on that and leading leading us into our state, you know, where where we're going to read the law, um, right. So we usually do two songs in that right. first slot. I mean, you can write. I mean, there here's an example of where there's freedom. Uh, one, two, ten. I, I don't know. Ten would seem like a little <laughs> bit much for me. But in some cultures, it might not be. We sing. And you're perfectly right, Mike, to say that we really want to emphasize the holiness of God here. And, and then after those songs, um, I typically come up. I always come up, actually. And, and, and uh, I read the law of God invite the people to confess their sin, and then I offer what we call the assurance of pardon. Uh, That needs to be explained a little bit. Um, I should say that we try to do this in a variety of ways, partly to guard against just the, so it doesn't become monotonous. Um, I try to offer little uh, words of encouragement and some teaching. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sometimes, oftentimes this is the order of the element of the order of worship that I um, explain most frequently because right. I think it's such uh, an uncommon thing in our culture, at least in the traditions that we, a lot of our people come out of. And so I've, you know, I'm always wanting to explain this, but uh, yes, we, we've, uh, we've been called by God. We've entered in, we, we've prayed to him. We've entered into worship. 
the end result should be that we are very much aware of his holiness and right. our, our uh, unholiness, right. our need. Uh, and then we read the law of God in, in one way or another, sometimes directly from the Ten Commandments. Sometimes we read Jesus' summary of the law, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But the point is that the law is read so that it might convict, so that we might look at it and, and see a reflection of ourselves there and to see that we are not worthy, but rather we, as we're approaching God, the only way we can approach him is by confessing our sin and calling out to him for mercy. Um, and so the church is invited to do that um, silently. I would imagine that in some traditions, maybe, I don't know, maybe <laughs> they pray out loud, but it, you know, in the quiet of your heart, come before the Lord and confess your sin to him. And then in, in various ways, I, I, I seek to, as, as a pastor, encourage the church, saying, if you indeed have faith in Christ, if you're trusting in him, um, then your sins are forgiven. You know, your sins are forgiven. Uh, sometimes there'll be a responsive reading of some sort where I'll conclude that time of prayer saying, have you obeyed this law perfectly? And the congregation is to respond saying, we confess that we have violated this law in thought, word, and deed, right? Uh, so, so sometimes we'll use a responsive reading there. Um, but a very famous text for uh, use in the assurance of pardon is Romans 8, 1 through 4, which says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. And so Romans 8, 1 through 4 is a wonderful text to just remind the people of God that if they are trusting in Christ, they are not under condemnation. The the law no longer condemns them because they are in Christ Jesus who has kept the law for us and in our place. This is honestly, I think, one of my favorite portions of the order of worship because it's here that really the gospel is preached in a very explicit way, each Lord's Day. I mean, it should be preached in the in the sermon too, and right. I mean, but but here it, it's definitely preached because the law is read. People are reminded of their sin. They come before the Lord. They confess it, and then there's this great reminder that it, it's Christ Jesus, our Lord, and faith in Him that is the solution. Right? Mm-hmm. He He is provided for us. Some might respond to this, going, "Well, why do Christians need to go through this every Lord's Day?" if they have been justified from the moment that they moment they believed um why why do we need to go through this um constant remembrance of our sin and, and confessing our sin and being assured of, of of the pardon that we have in Christ Jesus i mean i hope the answer is obvious to folks though i know it's not obvious to all in fact i was just reading on a, a blog today a bunch of kind of back and forth about this topic um it was curious to me um I mean, the truth of the matter is, yes, we were justified at the beginning of the Christian life, but we're in the process of sanctification. You know, we are already children of God made holy by Christ's blood and and, and completely cleansed uh, the moment we believe uh, and place our trust in him. That is all true, but we are in process. We are in process. The scriptures also speak uh, to the need of coming before God and confessing our sins regularly to him that we might be cleansed anew and afresh. Right. It is not that justification is a process. It is not that... Um, 
it, it is not that we need to be re-justified every Lord's Day or anything like that. Th- this is, for the believer, a part of sanctification. Mm-hmm. Um, confessing anew and afresh those, those sins recently committed, uh, confess, confessing particular sins particularly. That's I use that phrase a lot. My wife called me out on it before. Why do you do that? I say, well, listen, it, it stuck out to you, didn't? Because I, I use this uh, repetition to the point where you're wondering why I do it. So it made you think, right? Uh, it, it's a traditional thing to talk about confessing particular sins particularly. I think it's in our confession, actually. What's the point here? It's that we're calling people to really think about their specific or particular sins and to confess them in a particular way, saying, Lord, forgive me for this and that thing that I did right. and help me to not do it again, to overcome it. Um, th- th- this confession of sin is to be a regular part of the Christian life, and I think it is good for us to pray, right? That's one of the elements of uh, our worship as Christians, prayer, to pray in particular for this issue that we would acknowledge our sin and, and look to God to um to, to continually sanctify us mm-hmm. in regard to it. Yeah. It's good for even Christians just to constantly be reminded of Jesus Christ, his shed blood, and the fact that there is pardon found in him. Yeah. It's not just for non-believers, it's for Christians too. Right. Yeah. After that, we sing more. Right, and this one's usually a song responding to uh, the forgiveness that we've just been reminded of or received. Um, yeah. Well, the idea is... it. If we've just fixed our minds on the gospel, if we just thought about this glorious truth that we are pardoned in Christ Jesus, what should be the natural impulse of the Christian except to just rejoice, to celebrate, to sing in response to it? So we usually sing one one or two Mm -hmm. uh, songs there in that slot. Uh, Mike, you, you usually pray the prayer of illumination. I mean... I would imagine that um, pastors often do that, but I've really appreciated the thoughtfulness you've put into those prayers. I know you'll oftentimes have them written out. Mm-hmm. Um, that's new for you. I think you grew up in a tradition where like a prayer written out was probably uh, not worth anything, right? Right. right. It needed to be spontaneous. It's, and <laughs> it's, it's interesting because, yeah, th- that was uh, a long time ago. That was my initial thought when I remember seeing someone reading a prayer that you'd written out and I thought, man, you can't even, that's, you can't even just wing it on a good, you know, you know, it's, it's not authentic, good, yeah, right? It's not uh, authentic the, the spirit isn't leading. And, right. Uh, right. Uh, whatever. But then you're thinking through that, the same thing we're coming back to just, we're, we're leading a corporate worship where we're leading our, you know, the body of Christ into this prayer. It needs to be well thought through. It needs to be purposeful. It needs mm-hmm. to, and it, you know, in this case, it's a prayer of illumination, and we're preparing for hearing the word of God. So we're asking, we're asking the Holy Spirit to to open our hearts and minds, and right. um, yeah. to to receive the word, and and for it to have an impact and in its transforming power in our lives. So it's important. Well, yeah, I like it that that you do that. Um, I like it that it's thoughtful, and um, it it does prepare. Uh, the congregation to turn their attention to, to the word. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at this time we actually bring our kids up to the front and we give um, some time for catechism instruction. It usually only takes, I don't know, three to five minutes or something. Yeah. It kind of gives the kids a chance to 
get up and get their wiggles out a little bit. They come forward and, and one of our elders um, gives some instruction to the kids and introduces the catechism question for the week. We have it all scheduled out to where we move through it every couple of years. Um, the kids hear some instruction that's somewhat on their level. Um, the secret is, and, and you know, don't tell anybody, but it's really for the adults, <laughs> for, for the parents, uh, honestly, to introduce it so that they can uh, lead their children through the catechism that coming week. It's really a sweet time, actually, to see the front row all filled with the kids who are all attentive. And then they get a little handout and they go back to their seat after that. But that that is, in a way, ministry of the Word. Mm-hmm. It, it's not as if it is Scripture reading, um, but it is the Word being taught in systematic form. It is the truth of Scripture bring, being brought to the children and to the congregation. Usually there's a memory verse attached to each one of those two. So that that's under the heading of ministry of the Word. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're teaching the Bible in a systematic way to our children and to the congregation. And then from there we go to uh, the reading of Scripture and to the preaching or teaching of God's Word. Um, a while ago we started the, the custom of reading from both the Old and New Testaments, right. which I, I think, I think has been good. good. And so what I'll do is if I'm preaching a text in the New Testament, I'll find an Old Testament text that corresponds to it in some way. You know, it's been kind of easy in the Gospel of John, honestly, because there's so many allusions to the Old Testament or quotations of it. You you match them up. Helps with uh, understanding the New Testament text. And I would do the other thing if uh, we were teaching through an Old Testament book. I know some churches, they'll just read um, uh, sequentially through the Scriptures for the Old Testament reading, you know, starting with Genesis 1 and then going through and then they'll have their sermon text from the New or vice versa. Um, so we read the Word, and then it is preached, it is taught. That's what Paul told Timothy to do as a young pastor, to devote himself to that, you know, to the public reading of Scriptures, to, to teaching it, to take care, to watch his doctrine and, and all of those things. So uh, that that's what we do. And um, so I preach for a while. Um, one of my goals as a preacher is to keep those sermons succinct, uh, to say a lot in a short amount of time, hopefully, you know. And I don't know, what have my sermons been? 45 minutes or so? Between like 38 minutes and 43 minutes, so pretty good. Look at that. We only know because we record them and Mike does yeah. all that work. So <laughs> we have kids, and so I'm mindful of uh, their attention span. But yeah, we, we study the Word of God, and then we enter into a time, I, I pray in conclusion to that, and then we enter into a time where we... um. Uh, observe the Lord's Supper. And typically I instruct a little bit as to what the Lord's Supper is. I say words of institution having to do with, uh, you know, the bread representing the body of Christ, it being broken on the night that he was betrayed, and the, the cup representing the blood of the new covenant. Um, uh, I invite folks to the table. I fence the table, meaning that I warn against coming and partaking in an unworthy manner, either in unbelief or in unrepentant sin. Um, I, I pray a prayer of thanksgiving uh, to God there at that point. I also pray blessing upon those who are partaking and I make intercession for those who might be abstaining. And, and then we partake together. Yeah. And if, you, if you're if you curious at all about more details on that, check out a previous episode um, of this, of Messing the Faith, where we talked a lot about fencing the table and just Lord's Supper. Sure. Um, so yeah. check that out. It's my goal to beef this up a little bit. We we pray after um, the Lord's Supper. I pray. Um, I'd like to make that more of a um, a prayer that emphasizes intercession uh, for the church 
oftentimes we kind of lump that into the prayer of invocation that we mentioned mm-hmm. earlier, and I don't think it's wrong or bad, uh, but we kind of do the prayer of invocation, and then it, it, it goes into a time where we intercede for people in the congregation who are hurting, who are struggling. Um, for a while, it's been my intention to really do that here. Here we have just observed the Lord's Supper, and one of the things that is symbolized there is our union as a body, you know, together one with another because of our union with Christ. It really would be a sweet time to pray for the church and needs within the church here right after partaking the Lord's Supper. I just have to retrain myself, really, and we have to be disciplined to do it. Mm. Um, and then we sing more. Usually one, one song, and then the doxology, and we sing the doxology every Lord's Day. Yeah, singing to Tacapella just as a conclusive. Yeah, and I, I think I, I really think that's important. I like it because there we are emphasizing um, uh, the Triune God every Lord's Day, mm-hmm. right? And the fact that every blessing flows from Him, uh, Father, Son, and and Holy Ghost, right? Um, it's a wonderful way to conclude the service. And then we close with a benediction or charge, and one of the elders will come up and will, again, read Scripture as a way of closing out our time of worship that really emphasizes them being sent out from that time of worship to to live in obedience to God and to serve God and to live in the power of the Holy Spirit and by the Word. And, you know, it, it, it just the, the service needs to be concluded like that to communicate that, Okay, here you've worshipped God Almighty. Here you've heard His Word. You know, um, you've been encouraged and strengthened. Now go and obey Him and serve Him in all that you do. An example would be Colossians two six through seven, which says, "Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord," which, of course, all of these Christians did for the first time long ago. But in a sense, the whole liturgy has communicated. <laughs> Right, has communicated that, um, the call to worship, and then concluding with the Lord's Supper and, and all of that. I mean, now, as you have received Christ Jesus Lord, so walk in him. Now go walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And so, uh, we, you know, we use a variety of texts to, to do the same thing. But just think about Colossians 2, 6, or 7. If anybody's paying attention, that's a wonderful way to conclude the service. Here, you've received all this. You've just taken the Lord's Supper, which symbolizes the fact that you've received Christ as Lord. You've feasted upon him. You, you've been encouraged. You've been built up. You've heard the faith. Now go out and walk in him and do so with thanksgiving. You know, I, that's just a cool way to conclude, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I, I think... As you're listening to all this, I hope if you're a part of Emmaus Christian Fellowship or if you're a part of another church, um, I would hope that you would be encouraged to come to worship on the Lord's Day prepared, that that you would realize the significance of what you're doing. Um, you, you know, you're coming before God Almighty. You're gathering with other people who also worship the triune God uh, in the name of Jesus Christ. And you're coming before him to worship him. You know, it's a very incredible thing, an incredible privilege that we have in Christ Jesus. And and so come with hearts prepared. Prepare your heart on a Saturday night. Prepare your heart early on a Sunday morning. Come to church on time, you know. I mean, that, that really is something that needs to be said. When you walk in 15 minutes late, it really communicates that 
I mean, things happen, right? Sometimes you're just late because whatever, you know, things happen. But sometimes it just is that, you know, you haven't made it a priority to really prepare your heart and to come and to worship the triune God. And, uh, you know, we need to come realizing the significance of what we are about to do. We're about to be called to worship. We're about to worship. We're about to be edified and sent out. I was thinking of Hebrews 12, 18 through 24, just to kind of communicate this principle here, where um, the writer of the Hebrews is actually comparing and contrasting Old Covenant, New Covenant worship and the experience of Israel, you know, under Moses and Mount Sinai. And, you know, you, you think of Sinai, you think, well, that was glorious. You know, all of the, the vision that they saw, they saw the glory of God, they heard his voice. And, um, you know, uh, that must have been an overwhelming worship experience to be there with the people of Israel in the wilderness. But the writer of the Hebrews is trying to make the point that you are, you are actually coming before God in a more substantial and significant way, in a more glorious way. He says, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words make the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. The point he is making is that you have come to a better mountain, <laughs> you know, uh, not not a physical one that can be touched, but you've come to the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled where? In heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So he goes on from there, but his whole point is to say, do you not realize what you have in Christ Jesus, you look back to, to, to all of the, the, the worship of, of ancient Israel and say, oh, it must have been so good to, to see it and to hear it and to touch it, right? Um, to, to, to enter into that tangible form of worship. I want to go back. And he's saying, no, you, you've entered into something far greater in Christ Jesus. You've come to the heavenly Jerusalem. And when you engage in worship, you are worshiping in the heavenly realm with angels and festal gathering and, and so on and so forth. So think about that, brothers and sisters, and come to worship on the Lord's Day with hearts prepared, understanding what it is that we are doing when we enter into that time of corporate worship together. Yeah. Well, if you have any questions or comments at all, um, send us an email. I've said this a couple times in the past, but just to just to reinforce it, just, you know, send us an email. We'd love to talk about it if we didn't get to address it on this topic. And it's staff at emmauscf.org, E-M-M-A-U-S-C-F.org. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Confessing the Faith. And until next time, abide in Christ. Mm-hmm.